So welcome back everybody to another episode of the Darko Audio Podcast. This time, something very, very different. The first time that I've had two guests on the same podcast and two returning guests, no less. So first of all, we have Alessandro Cortini, who is a member of Nine Inch Nails, also a synth wizard and has made records by himself and with Daniel Avery. And then also joining us today is techno god, <laughs> John Tejada. I guess he would prefer to be called an electronic musician. Electronic think, musician god. That level of hyperbole. Electronic musician god. Okay, right. Um, and we are all gathered here today <laughs> um, to talk about a very specific pair of headphones that each of us have, and that is the Ross and Rad Zero. Now, I wonder if we might start with you, John, because you live in LA, you're, you're talking to us from LA right now. You know Alex. So I think you were the first to get a pair of these. Is this right? Yeah, it all kind of happened uh, by accident. I've known Alex actually for 20 years, but hadn't seen him in ages. And um, he had somebody working there who mm. repaired Technics 1200s. Um, so I went over there and um, met this guy and brought my turntable and... They were just kind of like, hey, want to see what we're working on? I was like, oh, that's cool, you know. Uh, and it, it took quite a while, uh, kind of getting to re-know Alex. Um, and, uh, but anyway, I was just kind of more and more curious. But I knew they were making high-end stuff that I kind of didn't want to spend all my money on, you know. So I just kind of avoided it as much as I could. But um, long story short, that was, that was a few years ago now. Uh, time kind of flies. Um, and now I'm kind of over there bi-weekly and uh he sort of lovingly has said i'm the head beta tester and head of r&d or something um <laughs> but i uh yeah so I've, I've gotten more involved than i realize i think and uh every time i go over there alex's uh number one dude taylor sits me down and wants me to listen to four pairs and it's always kind of like i always feel like i'm being tested i think yesterday there were finally two <laughs> pairs that were exactly the same and it was like i i couldn't tell you and he was like Perfect. And I was like, wow, I passed again, you know? Um, but yeah, uh, I mean, we could go into uh, the rest of that, uh, the details later. But um, but yeah, and also a former student of mine works there. And uh, it's just like a little, very masked up, safe family hang. And yeah, anyway, so um, that's, uh, I just sort of slowly got in with learning about his tech and learning about uh what's possible with monitoring, I guess, with, with headphone monitoring through going there just to hang out, basically. I guess we should explain who Alex Rosson is, for those that don't know, <clears throat> in that he used to work for Audizy, and he was, the, I guess, the leading light of Audizy for many years, well, for at least what, five, six, seven years. I'm, I'm kind of lost on the timeline a little bit. And then he went to work for Shinola. And then after he left Shinola, he sort of started out on his own, making his own headphone brand, right? So these are planar magnetic headphones that do have a kind of an element of the Odyssey DNA in the way they look a little bit. But I, I guess the kind of the most striking visual feature is the, is the ear cups, which are sort of molded from like, a, is it? I mean, Alex sent me an email and he said it's called like... Um, like a stabilized wood, which has to be sort of fashioned from like a resin or an epoxy that gets yeah. set. So I've been there many times to pour molds and just, for, again, everything's just for fun. Yeah. Um, 
Hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess what you what you said, but uh, yeah, it's a sort of quick heating and drying thing that then has to go into a, a pressure pot, and then it gets cut. Hmm. Um, and yeah, they're all unique. Uh, um, and there's you know there's other materials too. He he can basically do whatever. I've seen ti- I, there was talk of titanium rings and uh, now Alessandra, your your pair. Can you explain to us the co- the colors you went for? Because yeah, yeah, I was. I was lured in mostly from, as opposed to from the technical side, from the visual aspect, and then reading and looking at how Alex was making them. So the like hands-on sort of like boutique approach of making something so, you know, precise as headphones. It just was really interesting to me. But the fact that they all looked unique and the fact that you could choose your own color combination really attracted me. And uh, uh, mine are based on... uh, you know, one of my favorite guitars of when I was, you know, an adolescent, a shredder, <laughs> which at heart I'm, I still am. And it's basically uh, a multicolored Ibanez guitar, like a universe model, which was the Steve Vai guitar, you mm-hmm. know, the guitar that you see on his album, Passion and Warfare, just the guitar that, you know, as a kid I used to dream about. And uh, so when I sent, when Alex uh, was, you know, when it came time to decide what color to make him, I sent him a photo, photo of the guitar and he's like, yes, he got excited. So that's what they are. You know, it's a very neon, you know, neon pink, neon green, neon yellow, all mixed together. So I do, I do have a, um, a time-lapse video of these molds being made, which I will put in the show notes for this podcast. Obviously, we're talking about something visual <laughs> and that this is not a visual medium. But to give some people some idea, it's it's not like distinct colors. It's like a a, a swirling mix of, say, three or three colors or two colors and a texture maybe some other material that's mixed in with the epoxy um john what did you go for did you choose or did you just kind of go with whatever uh, i sort of the pairs that i i'll use we we will have a, we'll talk about this later but we'll have a, a bit of a tweak with them but um once in a while i'll get a text like oh sorry somebody bought the headphones you know we wait, anyway we got a we got a different pair we want you to take <laughs> and then um there was finally I think it's the third pair I'm on, and it was finally like, take please just take these off the website because I, I finally did end up pouring some molds, and they <laughs> once in a while they crack being made. Um, so my molds cracked, and it was like ah whatever, just you know we'll just keep s- switching it out. And then um, one of the sort of golden pairs for that week was essentially what I would have poured anyway, which is really kind of sort of understated. I don't know if you can see it over the camera. It's just kind of blue cobalt oh, black blue. uh with black hardware and i was just like this is for what the benefit I... of the people listening at home we, we should yeah sorry i'm gonna say that for the benefit of the people lis- listening at home who are not privy to our skype call we're using to kind of arrange this conversation john just held up a very kind of um cobalt blue pair of of rags yeah. and the ones i had before were like uh um, sort of jade and white with silver hardware. So those those were a little more bling than I need, but they were beautiful. I, I thought those were going to be the keepers. <laughs> and who knows, you know, I'll, I'll they may just keep getting swapped. But that's the great thing about being uh, in a position I'm in, which I didn't know I was in, actually. <laughs> and, okay, so, I mean, the thing is about planar magnetic headphones, especially the ones that require a lot of magnets or use a lot of magnets, and then with these you know, these resin ear cups, they're pretty heavy, right? I mean, they're half a ki- half a kilo. Oh, you Europeans. I mean, I'm kidding. I'm d- from Europe too. Um, they're, what are they? Are they still near? <laughs> se- they've gotten lighter though. And they, 
they do disperse the weight quite well, but mm. are they just under 700 now? I probably shouldn't say any numbers. I mean... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I understand that's a big deal, but man, I've been wearing them every yeah. day from 9 a.m. till off and on, but uh. you know, till like 6 p.m. when I work and make music and and I've not once, even with glasses, I had to take them off. There's plenty of other headphones that I have that um, they might be super light, but somehow the headband, and push, headband is pushing against my glasses. So I need to sort of, you know, stretch them a little bit to relief, you know, to get a little relief. Mm. I've never thought of these as being heavy. I think the weight is distributed perfectly. Uh, they're hefty, but in a good way. You know what I mean? It, to me, mm. like, for example, the other ones that I use are, at time are the MDR Z1R, mm -hmm. which I love for listening, not so much for working because they're a little too exciting, you know. I mean, and exciting is not the right term, but like they're a little, a little too. They take the attention away from what I'm doing, you know what I mean? Right. Um, and those are too light. Like for example, I don't feel like I can quickly turn into to a synthesizer and do shit because they'll move a little bit. You know what I mean? Right. Even if I have them tied up the right way, you know. These feel like the Rad Zeros feel solid. Um, it feels like once I set the listening spot, it doesn't move. You know what I mean? But it doesn't, you know, squish my head in an uncomfortable way at all. I think that by reading that they're so heavy, there's a certain amount of, uh, of, 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 you know, making yourself believe that then they're uncomfortable. But I don't think, I think they're just very well, I don't know, I'm saying you, I'm just saying someone who doesn't have a chance to try them, you know what I mean? Mm. But I don't think the weight on paper is synonymous with with uh, being, them being uncomfortable at all, personally. Well, uh, they've been a lesson for me because I really don't like heavy headphones at, at all. Like I can't do the, the high-end orders for that very reason. And I was extremely reluctant, I to take a pair of the rads initially. And I think it would like you, Alessandro, the visual side of it really swayed me. And also because the story with, you know, Alex being behind this new brand and also at the time when he launched, he was really being very sort of almost laid back about promote, promoting them and really just looking after pro audio people like you guys more than the audiophile market. But when I learned that, the way he done some is basically the, the weight distribution, the way I feel it is very different to an Odyssey in that the side clamping force is much stronger, but mm -hmm. very importantly, the pads, the ear pads are super like crazy thick, right? Yeah. They're super yeah. thick. So yes, they kind of like, <clears throat> they clamp pretty tight, but they're not uncomfortable on the sides. Not at all. I mean, sometimes I get a bit on the top of my head where the headband cushion sort of pushes down a little bit, but that's maybe because I've got a weird shaped head. I don't know. But, but John, are they, are they, is, is the weight or the comfort thing an issue for you ever or not? At no. All? And in fact, yesterday we were having a play with that. And, um, there's actually, uh, they reminded me there's some documentation on the website that very easily shows you how to relieve the clamp force and you, it's pretty impossible to break mm. them. So you can very easily. So mine again, holding up for people that can't see mine now, I don't know if you could see it. They don't really clamp together when they're off my head. So meaning I'm just holding them up right now. And if they were clampy, they would just like glue the pads together. So I've got a little bit of, yeah. I can't really even show it on camera well, but it's, it's very easy to adjust that. Um, there's a lot of things to adjust. We can talk about some things we can't, but um, mm. yeah, the, the, the weight is very nicely distributed. And uh, like, like Alessandra says, you kind of want a little bit of a, 
heft, a little bit of a cocoon. But as same to Alessandro's point, I can wear them forever and ever and ever. Very comfy. In fact, they're almost like a little security blanket. Like I sit in this chair and I put them on and I'm like, okay, I'm ready 100%. to go. Yeah. So. And, you know, I like the fact that they're open. So, you know, like, especially now that, you know, I'm in a new place and I'm kind of getting used to, you know, hearing the doorbell or things like that, <laughs> you know, uh, it's great to be able to still be a part of the environment around me and have great sound at the same time. You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah, they, they, you're right. That security blanket term is a very good way of describing it. Like those, 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 those weighted blankets that are used to relieve stress, right? So, yeah, yeah for me, they... and. John also, I think you said cocoon, and they do feel like a cocoon of sound. Like, like once they're on your ears, you don't feel like there's any kind of leakage in the side of the ear cups or anything like that. So you mm -hmm. really do feel sealed in to whatever the music is, which I think is definitely terrific. I agree. I guess we need to talk about sound, which is also always very hard, but I'm, I'm, I've already scripted a video, so I don't really want to talk about sound from my point of view too much. And being as I've got you guys as guests and your time is very valuable, maybe I could ask you guys why you like these headphones so much. And if you want to draw on comparisons to other models, you can. If you don't, I really don't mind. I mean, maybe we'll start with Alessandro, and because I know you're, you've got a few headphones that you've tried before these, mm -hmm. before landing on these, right? Yeah, I mean, I've, for the longest time, and I still use them as a, a reference, I just don't use them as much because now I'm so used to the RADs. Um, I've used the uh, Grado RS1E, mm -hmm. RS1Es, um, which go, going back to right now, they're a little harsher on the high end, but a little more present on the high end than these to mm. me. Um, what I like about these is the fact that I don't have to it's kind of like in a way they behave the same way that my uh, my my monitors my my mixing you know speakers do mm. in the sense that i hardly ever have to to second guess what i work on like in fact i don't have you know speakers right now everything that i do and i deliver if it's for work or my own records that i've you know released on bandcamp are done with these headphones you know i master my stuff with these and Granted, I go for a walk and listen with other things, and it's either these or the you know or the campfire audio things. But campfire is not you know full headphones. Mm. But so I would think, to me, the asset of the Red Zeros is the fact that it's one less thing to worry about. You know, I mean, it's it's almost hard to describe their sound because I don't have to think about it. It's, but not in a you know in a utilitarian, you know. Uh, uh, not from a utilitarian point of view where you go, well, you know, it's just like a car that brings you from A to B. No. So it's not like in a utilitarian way, like it would be with a, with a car that just takes you from A to B and there's nothing special about it. Um, they just make my job easier, you know, when it comes to working on, on music. Uh, the, first of all, the same thing that I've talked about when it comes to the comfort applies also from a sonic aspect. Mm. Applies to the sonic aspect as well, meaning that I can work with them for a long time and what it used to happen with other headphones i would work four or five hours with a pair of headphones mix or do something or work on a specific sound come back to it after taking a break and realize whoa this is bright you know or whoa this is basic this never happens to me with the red zeros like i come back to it after taking a break and it's pretty much where i left it which means that frequency wise at least it means to me 
that frequency wise they're very even so you know when you work with them for an extended period of time i don't feel like i'm boosting things that are not there or cutting things that are there too much mm. you know what i mean um and it's the only pair that i use to work and to listen to music digitally mm. you know for, for the most part i'm aside from in years you know for the campfire stuff um Everything else I tend to use either just for listening or just for work. Like the Grado, I don't use anymore to listen to music. Mm. You know, you know, I use them to work. Um, the the Sony, the MDR Z1R, I use exclusively to you know leisurely, simply because they have a you know they, they definitely have more importance from a bass perspective. Therefore, if I work with them, I know that I have to keep that in mind. You know, when I when I mix stuff or I, I process or you know mix you know um, certain sounds or create sounds that the fact that they have too much bass mm. with the red zeros i feel like i don't i never have to to worry about that right i mean john do you have a similar experience with this or is it a bit different or yeah um to alessandro's comments and points uh very very similar um i have as as you know john i, I kind of went down a rabbit hole of trying a lot of different pairs and I, i've got some sort of um mm. some things in the ballpark for other pairs of things I tried before. Um but I, I would say the thing that makes the rads um work for me very well is um and I mentioned it to Alex yesterday again I was kind of reminded of of something that I notice in them that I don't notice in anything else. When I'm working with really fine frequencies on an EQ and um let's take like uh I don't know, like say the focal clears, for example, if I'm moving a high shelf, shelf filter around, it's not very accurate, you know? Um, and those are supposed to be kind of like mm. accurate studio headphones and they're great for dynamic drivers. They're really beautiful. Um, but there's this level of detail in the rads where I, I really can hear which frequency I'm at and the slope of the filter and all of these sort of details that I've actually never even heard on speakers. Um, there was one guy, I forgot where I watched it, but I, I, this comment kind of sticks in my mind where he was reviewing high-end headphones and, you know, people always kind of complain about prices, but he really kind of broke it down that like, uh, headphones at this price point really deliver the sonic value of speakers that are like 10 times the price really. And I think that's, what's special about, uh, using special headphones there's a level of detail that we're hearing that people may never hear you know like we're these things on our head are you know i think complementary to twenty thousand dollar pmcs or atcs or whatever um they most certainly sound better than my big genlex by far you know i mean then then you have room problems which is another plus of headphones um but yeah and uh i think we talked mm, about before 100%. having a bit of crosstalk is important so we don't get this pure left and pure right but yeah i mean compared to all these other models that have kind of like obsessed and and i've borrowed stuff from alex a lot of his older designs and um yeah for for whatever reason there's, there's just something about this that he nailed and him being a pretty accomplished musician as well i think he doesn't like you said earlier he doesn't really advertise it but this is kind of made for us you know like um but it, it works for both you know just for for listening back it's beautiful and but the, the most important part is for getting that magnifying glass out. And, and as Alessandro described it, there is such an incredible value in being able to like 
hear your levels and set them and come back to it and it's not a mess. Like I've never had a monitoring situation where I could say that, you know, you always come back to it and it's like, oh my God, or like the next morning, you know, or you take it to the car and the windows explode yeah. out of the sockets. Who did this? Um, and that's always a problem. Like with, you know, I teach, yeah, yeah. I teach now and it's always this thing of like, oh, I took the mix to the car or whatever, you know, and, and this, I mean, yeah, mixes translate really well. Are there other products like this that are out there? Yeah, probably, but, well, I don't know. I've been, I've been, I've been searching and looking. Uh, there's a couple of things I haven't heard that are way expensive, but um, I think the benefit here is, you know, this guy's one of my best buds. And if when there's something slightly off, I go there and they take the whole thing apart and they say, here, try this, you know, so I'm in a really lucky situation. But, um, but yeah, having said that, other people mm. can do that as well. Well, but yeah, not, not to interrupt you, John, but that's an asset to a lot of people. I mean, the people that will be listening to this, that's an asset, I think, because, you know, you know, the fact that you and I and John, I mean, we're all going through a specific experience with these headphones and, you know, you had the, um, the opportunity to spend time there and see how they're made and have more of a direct, you know, eye on how they're designed. This is all stuff that most people don't really have a chance to do. So when they, when they try to make an informed decision on what to buy, they do rely on what we say about these things. And I think it's pretty obvious that in the position that we are, we could, just because it's our life, our, our, our us three, we could buy whatever we want when it comes to headphones. And I'm not saying this because we have unlimited resources, but because it's our life. So there's a better chance that we'd be spending three or four grand on a pair of headphones mm. than three or four grand. I don't know. In the, uh, any anything else that quote unquote normal people spend three or four grand. <laughs> you know, I mean, maybe a new roof. I don't know. <laughs> that, no, maybe, but, yeah. <laughs> but what I'm saying is that. The amount of, of, of experience that we have with the headphones and how we got, we came to love them. To me, it was more of a, you know, visual aspect first. That's what attracted me to them. Mm -hmm. And then the fact that they became a staple, you know, from a working aspect, just for, for what they actually are designed for. I think it's a testament for, for what these headphones, how good they are, you know, for how, you know, it's just very hard to, you know, to talk about things like these because people tend to buy so much with description online nowadays. And so something like the weight becomes such a, uh, uh, such a selling point or the opposite. You know what I mean? And it's, it's like, no, that's not, that's just, you know, just put them on your head and listen to music and then let me know. Cause they're headphones, mm. you know, you're supposed to do that. You're not going to be fucking doing, you know, bicep curls with them. So but, yeah. I mean, you could. <laughs> If I might jump in here with um, a couple of comparative notes, because I know people will want this. Because um, I, I spent most of last year with the Meze Empyrean, which is a mm -hmm. similarly priced headphone. It's three grand, right? Now, for me, there are two very clear, these are not all the differences, but two very clear differences between the, the Rads and the Meze. Number one, the Rads don't have that sort of super airy top end. Oh, but they can. For me, it's a little bit more... They can. They, I will come <laughs> okay. to that in a moment, but like generally in stock form, John, um, they just, they kind of have this sort of fairly sort of see, slightly sealed in relative to the Meze anyway. And the second thing is, is that they have more low end heft. There's more, it's not that they go lower, it's just there's more weight to the sound. Probably than... Uh, the only other headphone that I've heard that has that kind of weight is the final D8000 and, and the Pro version as well. I can make some comparisons as well. Um, I think the bass thing you describe 
you know, all these things, like how do we actually talk about and describe them? Um, like a word that comes to mind is even. It's weird, like when some headphones slam in the bottom end, it's just sort of accentuated sub. But these go all the way down in a very even way, but they don't have any dips in all of these areas that kind of like me and Alessandro need to hear. Like they don't have any pleasant dips in the low mid. So like if something's muddy, it's going to sound really muddy. So that's another sort of valuable mm -hmm. point. Um, the way it's tuned, uh, bad things will stick out. In fact, when I first got them, I remember not being totally, uh, they, they sounded quite different as well. I mean, we're talking like near prototypes, but I remember finally hearing like a really good mix on them and, you know, it was very three-dimensional holographic, but a lot of music wasn't. And I, I, that really actually changed my whole mixing process, which we can talk about later. But I remember telling Alex, like, these things are cool. I want to make these things dance, you know, like when things come alive in them, like, you know, you're doing a good job. Um, but when everything is just kind of middle and muddy anyway, it does, that's to the, to how they're tuned. Um, yeah. And I mean, I, I guess as many descriptors as we use, it'll never really come across. Um, but I can compare them to the heads, which are kind of bass light, kind of electrostaticy, and are a little bit bloated in parts of the mid even though those can sound sort of similar but usually when i put the rads back on it's like this huge sense of relief of like oh thank god yeah they they really do sound like that okay phew um <laughs> yeah i don't know you know i mean people just have to try them but uh they've 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 been kind of rocking our worlds me and alessandro and i mean gosh you're not even flipping your speakers on i'm nearly not flipping these on i've got really beautiful speakers well there's a reason for that you know like Right now I'm in a little office room and uh, the speakers I have are barefoot. So the moment I turn one on, it's, you know, it's very hard. I mean, even though they have a built-in sub, it's very hard to, you know, I'd have to yeah, treat Yeah, and room. I have, and it's To me, these useless. headphones, you know, take the spot of, of the barefoot in a way. I'm like, right now, I don't feel the need. Yes, I go out and maybe listen, you know, put something on Dropbox and then listen from my phone with the, my Solaris or something like that. But um, generally speaking, I... I do that less and less just because I've come to to be so confident about what I what I hear on the Rad Zeros that it's just I don't even think about it anymore. And then, you know, the only pain in the ass is switching to the, you know, to the to the other balanced cable when I when I pop them in into my, you know, my Sony Walkman. Uh, <laughs> really, and because then I just grab them and bring them to the couch with me. I literally have them glued on for most of the That's the thing. Day. I mean, I trust them. I'll flip the speaker. The speakers now have become a really nice set of speakers that are like, okay, the product's finished, you know, but sometimes I'll hear things in the speakers. And I'm like, Ooh, but I'm like, no, that's my room. That's not right. You know, like put, let me put the rads back on, like <laughs> just to check it. And then maybe I'll split the difference. And sometimes I'm wrong. So like, yeah, and cause I'm, that's the other thing about headphones. I, like, I would have to invest so much in this room to tune it properly, and that's still not guaranteed. I have friends who yeah. put six figures into a room, and for whatever reason, the physics and the math didn't work out, and it's just, it's just a dud, and there's horrible spots. Um, yeah, so I, I trust them over my. What do I have? John would know better. What do I have? Eighty three fifty one eighty A's. The Genelex. The ones. Oh, you've yeah, you got the ones, you've got the big yeah. ones, right? So the 8351. And they're probably too big for this room anyway. Um, so it's more like 
I'm going to put on a record and listen to it on the speakers. Well, actually, most times, yeah, I sit down and I, <laughs> I pop on the rads or now having a play with those IEMs again because of the RME amp, um, which we talk a bit about a lot too. Yeah, I mean... Um, well, that's... I mean, I mean, that is the thing though, isn't it? When you've got um, the... I mean, because John Tejada has an RME ADI2 DAC FS, which I'm also looking at on my de desk right now. Alessandro, you're behind the ball on this one. God damn it. You gotta no, got one. But the, one of the great things about it is, is the EQ settings. So if you don't quite like the sound of a headphone, you can tweak it a bit. And I, and I know you've done this, John, with your rads, right? You've you've applied some EQ. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, well, I, I thought I found these settings somewhere. I, this, so this is kind of a, a silly thing. I based it off a graph. So graphs, you know, they're good for some things. and But you, you can have a play. One thing I want to say about the EQ, about that DAC, even though that's a different show, is obviously you can do a headphone EQ with software. There's multiple, multiple, multiple types of doing that. But what's... The problem is you've got digital peak zero on your computing device. So if you do any gains, if you boost anything, now you have to reduce the volume. Um, the difference on the RME is its peak zero is max output of zero. So you can do a bunch of boosts and you don't have to compensate the volume at all. I don't know if that's making much sense by the look of your face, but it's a real drag using <laughs> software EQ and... It, because mm. you can actually go above peak zero just by introducing a high-pass filter, which is a weird physics thing. So you're actually getting rid of stuff, and it's gotten louder. So now you're taking the volume down. Oh, so see. that becomes really annoying in software EQ, and you have to make sure your extension and all the stuff is on. You know, So when you're just routing straight to the, to the RME, um, yeah, you can do crazy boosts. Like I still have those 800, uh, Sennheiser 800S, which they're still mm. a, a wonderful design, I mean, they talk about comfortable headphones, they're amazing, but they need about 5 dB of, of low shelf below 80 for me, and then they sound pretty darn good. But um, if I did that on software EQ, I'd have to now reduce my sound output 5 dB, which is just kind of a bummer, you know, but on the, on the RME, you can do, right. I mean, I'm never going to listen to that thing in high, high gain mode at zero, you know, like, um, mm -hmm. yeah, interestingly yeah. enough, the rads can take it, but my head will explode. So, um, I can do all <laughs> these kind of boosts and I don't have to worry about like, oh, I have to compensate the volume. Oh, it's clipping. Like the, basically the army is never going to clip. So anyway, yeah, like, uh, playing around with headphone tunings, like, oh, I wonder what would happen if they sounded like this, um, Again, yeah, it can be as simple as throwing an EQ on, but just to save those presets and flip between them, that's pretty cool. So I'll do that a bit, and I'll come back to Taylor at, at Alex's place, and I'll tell him about it and stuff I've tried. And, you know, then they, mm. next time I come, I have to listen to four pairs, and they don't tell me what the difference is, you know, but it's, like, super fun. <laughs> um I think I've gotten way <laughs> off topic here. I get I get excited about EQs. Well, no, not at all. <laughs> not at all. No, 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 because uh, you can talk about whatever you like. I mean, I'm happy to talk about the RME because I think it's a wonderful piece of kit. And I did try your EQ yesterday, your settings. I applied them. And you. I think there was a bit, for my taste, there was a bit too much of a, a an extra push at, was it 10K? And I brought it down a, a notch. And But you also, you introduced a slight dip at 200 hertz. And I preferred it with even more of a dip, right? I actually, I actually wanted yeah. to pull it down even more. So it's kind of interesting. In some ways, this makes a bit of a mockery of the idea of having something completely flat. I know that that is important. And you guys have both said this word today, which I think is crucial for me to underline. And the word is trust. 
So for you working, creating music, you need to be able to trust the gear to, I guess the other word you use, the other T word is translate, right? So your mixes translate properly um, because you don't want to have these kind of weird distortions. So if you get a suck out somewhere, your mix is going to be elevated in that area, maybe, right? So I think these things are important. Like from a listener point of view, maybe, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe EQ is... I guess I can be more casual about EQ than maybe you can. I don't know. Well, it's it's interesting because even doing some EQ, it doesn't really change uh, their tuning so much. Like I've got a pair that mm. if they were, uh, if we shot the frequency, the uh, higher octaves would be about a dB and a half elevated just evenly throughout the curve. But it's, mm. you know, you can, I can AB them to a quote unquote stock pair and it's it's still not that different even though it's a little different so it just has this power of its of its tonality that stays intact really no matter what you throw at it um i think that's a good point actually because th these headphones are very strong on to on tonal qualities of music like i can hear like say compared to the meze for example i don't know what it is and but I just feel like there's a stronger sense of music's tone, so music's color. So maybe, you know, like a piano or a guitar. I mean, this is the horrible cliche okay. of the audiophile world of sounding more like a piano or a guitar. But it just it sounds more believable, more real. Now that's not to take away. Just, yeah, their emotional connection definitely. They're more direct to the heart. Right. You know, and I'm not trying to take away from other headphones. And I think it's also important to point out that I can't EQ my mezes to sound like a pair of rads. Like the EQ is like salt and pepper on a meal. Yeah. Right. I, th I think so. It's not. It, yeah. It that's be. a good yeah. way to look at it. You're not swapping potatoes for, uh, uh, whatever. French fries. <laughs> chocolate, <laughs> yeah. chocolate mousse. Yeah. Um, yeah. Actually, that's a really good idea for this evening. Yeah. Thanks for that. I, I would say, um, one thing I've never, you know, every review is always like, oh, imaging, blah, blah, blah. And, um, those reviews are all, I'm glad you don't do them like that, which is why I think we all get along. But, um, Okay, so here's my time to exactly. be, you know, cliche about it. But what I mentioned before about wanting to make them dance, I've not experienced that in any other headphones, and I've tried the Odyssey stuff too. Um, once you sense, once you get stereo happening in an interesting way, it is just, there. there's a big, uh, it just, it's very distinct compared to other things. Like, I can put the same mix up on... The heads or the S eight hundred S's or the clears or the Solaris or you know all this sort of cheaper stuff and it doesn't do that like it, yeah it's so for that point they are really unique in that way and it I don't know if even if they are geared more towards audio professionals I, I'm totally sure that just people who want to enjoy music in a hi fi way would also start to notice. You know, it's that kind of thing where it's like, oh, I never heard that fifth guitar on Loveless before or whatever. Um, but um, I think there's, yeah. And and to, uh, I forgot which of you mentioned it, but there are definitely moments when I'll try some other things and they're so present and airy and, and they're like, oh, that's that's really beautiful. And I'll start kind of working with it. But then there's not that, again, that, that word, which I finally come to understand, imaging, there's not that detail where I can just kind of reach out and pluck something and put it. It just kind of 
you know, it's just uh, ah, all these descriptive words. It's so difficult, but um, I'm going to stop there. I think I've done enough. It, it's no, it's very difficult. Well, there's no other way. I mean, if people can't listen to them, we'll have to use words for them to, you know. Tell me, right, is, like, because when I read a general, like, an archetypal head fire review, I tend to see a sort of a fairly systematic approach of, like, I'll talk about the bass, talk about the mid-range, talk about the treble, then talk about head staging, right? Now, for me, there's there's more to reviewing than just slicing the frequency spectrum three ways and talking about, head staging or sound staging, but that last quality, I, I guess I wanted to know whether the sort of the, the sound stage or the head stage that the headphones sort of draw inside your head or just in front of your eye line or whatever, is that something you guys hone in on at all or is that irrelevant? Uh, that's, I mean, f that's another great thing about, so related to the imaging, yeah, the sound stage, um, on, a, on a badly recorded piece, it would seem there's not much soundstage, but you put something on that's, you know, like uh, Paul's latest record. I mean, on the rads, that thing's flying. You know, the the room is made yeah. of speakers, but if I put on, you know, something where everything's panned down the middle, sure, I'm going to have this. I'm putting my hands up and squeezing my head right now, but I'm going to have this very centered thing. But that's, that's really kind of changed my way of working. I now use um, delays kind of hard left hard right to throw everything out of the center because for the first time i can hear how effective that is um huh. so it's it's really done a, i don't how has panning has your vision has your vision of panning been influenced at all alessandro by by the rads like do you notice this kind of imaging and soundstage and wanting to kind of manipulate it like it just kind of makes me happy to the to do these little magic tricks. You know, I'll make a comparison that it's not it's not ideal, but you probably know what I mean. Uh, but the, the reference I would use, even though they weren't good speakers, is the NS20s. In other words, the NS20s, I, I think the RADs are much better. You know, they sound great. The NS20s, if you mix something on the NS20s and it sounded great, you know it sounds great everywhere. So I think in a certain way, I think the RADs have the same feature in the sense that... Uh, it's it's a it's a blank canvas. They'll never lie to you. Kind of like you know my my barefoot in a way. They'll never lie to you. They'll make things sound the way that they are. They're not particularly difficult to work on, but they'll accentuate the good things and also accentuate the bad things. So something like the sound stage, uh, you know, if I'm working on something, I'm creating something in the studio. It'll make playing with the soundstage or playing with the assignments to the left and right more exciting than it would be on a pair of headphones that is designed to sound sweet or designed to sound exciting from that point of view. Because no matter what, that's what a pair of headphones like that will give you. I think the the RAD is just a, a blank canvas from that point of view in the sense that uh, it'll make what's exciting more exciting and it'll, makes what, it'll make what's bland and negative more negative in a way, you know what I mean? In the sense that it'll make it obvious what I need to fix or what I need to work on. But when I say more, I, I'm not talking about gain or dBs or, you know, so it's not an exaggeration. It'll just make me focus, you know. So what are you talking about the precision, you know, and the, the detail? That applies for good and bad things. You know, for me, it's much easier on the rads to, to you know, to pinpoint something that doesn't fit what I'm working on.
and just get rid of it right away. Whether it's a frequency, whether it's a part, sometimes it's a part. I'm working on on a composition that has several elements, and I realize that I, mute, I, I quickly mute what's wrong right away. Well, not wrong, but what doesn't fit. It's so easy to, you know, to, to, it's much easier with the RAD to complete the puzzle, whatever the puzzle is. You know, if it's a multicolored, you know, rich puzzle, it's, or if it's a monochromatic one, it's just, it's easier and it's much more of a pleasure to do it on the RADs than everything else that I have. So coincidentally, today, John, you have a new album that's being announced that's coming out on Compact called The Year of the Living Dead. Right. And did you did you record any of this using the RADs or was this pre-RAD? Uh, yeah, so, this was um, this was sort of, I began working on it right when, you know, shit was getting real last March. Well, it got real for people before that, but here in LA. And... Um, hmm. Yeah, it was uh, I was getting to know the Rads much, much more, and and uh, it was this project where I started working with uh, a new set of tools that I didn't know, which was a, that's a whole other conversation. But um, that made an interesting process, and I just kind of chose the Rads um, because I was enjoying what I was learning about them. I just was like, uh, screw it, I'm just going to trust these things, and then all these things we already talked about, like imaging and soundstage. I I was learning techniques that I, I feel like I never properly understood them because I never could really hear them this way before. So um, there's a lot of mixing mm. stuff that I that I used and kind of show all the time now that um, I kind of uh, developed as I was using them. And um, yeah, so the, the entire album is made on the rads. And I'd say, like I mentioned earlier, towards the very end, I'll flip on the speakers and I've got a couple of little boxy little garbage things as well but for the most part i would trust the rads over over the speakers and then um you know our fr our friend stefan bitke pole at skate mastering mm -hmm. um you know we we're very very close we almost sometimes we can have like kind of a big brother little brother thing going but uh you know he wrote to me and he says fuck man how did you do that bass and you know like he's the master of bass so i was like okay these Pops. these headphones are <laughs> these things are knocking it out of the park, man. You know, um, and you're like you hung up the headphones, yeah, totally. All right, that's it. Mic drop. But I think that's the thing because um, that process. The one of the main things I'm sure we all get this. Even John probably from even though being a, not a producer, but um, uh, I'm gotten a bit blank. But it's it's always kind of like. Um, the, what we talked about earlier, the mix not translating, right? So um, just just being, I, I've totally lost my train of thought. There was actually a different point. But anyway, yeah, I've, I've done it all in the rads and uh, Stefan approved it. And um, it's it just, yeah, again, like going back to just being able to trust it and learning that you can trust it. That's a weird thing, you know? Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's very comforting. And it's also, I think, you know, one thing, I think I've mentioned this, but it's probably the only pair I have that does both leisure listening and professional you know music making listening um doable i mean most most other tools that i've used when it comes to headphones they're good either at one thing or the other you know like i've I've used a lot of bayer dynamics you know for for mixing or you know like the old sony's um and for listening for for like leisure listening i had something else that usually it's a little bit more exciting or maybe a little bit more colored hmm. um 
the rad zeros are the first pair that I can go back and forth without having to think about the fact that I'm going, you know what I mean? They're just pleasant. You know, they're not bland when I listen to music. They're not bland when I, when I, uh, when I'm working on music. They're not too over, overly excited in any sort of frequency range uh, as some of the, you know, the ones that I used to listen to records are. You know what I mean? I remember what I was going to say, if I could quickly, um, a lot of a lot of people I work with, um, I think based on what they're hearing with their ears, they're all most of them are really skilled mixing engineers, but they're going by what they hear. And if you have you know speakers in a room and the room is doing all kinds of weird things, you you are mixing to what you hear. But unfortunately, because of acoustic problems or or inaccuracies in other headphones, that's it's not going to translate because you're sort of being lied to, and that that becomes actually really massively depressing you know because now you feel sort of incapacitated like you you can't trust yourself and that's like this horrible feeling so at at least for me that's been this great thing of like i can trust what i hear it's no longer like oh i know that needs to go down a couple db because that's the room you know so it's kind of done away with all these sort of anxieties of like oh i know this needs to be brighter or blah 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 so just having to do away with that has been or having having a lot of help in that department has been really, really great. Um, I think that's an interesting point, certainly from in the audiophile world in which I sort of operate, is that some audiophiles don't like to be lied to at all, or they they tell themselves this anyway. Like for them, it's important for them to hear the truth of the recording. But I I don't really subscribe to this way of thinking. Like I'm I don't mind being lied to as long as it's a pleasant lie or it's delivered in a pleasant way because I'm not having to trust what I hear because I'm not working with it. But like, I mean, I've been to Stefan's studio here in Berlin, his mastering studio, and it's what, it's like a hundred, probably 80 Ks worth of ATC speakers. And then probably the same amount spent on the room treatment, right? So the room, the whole, it sounds incredible. And there's another guy here, another mastering guy um, who does Neil Fram stuff. But I've been to his studio as well. And also this is a, it's got these glass walls and the speakers are set into the wall. You know, probably that's probably the ideal way. And it's got this, um, yeah, it's a room within a room, I think. And again, it's probably one of the greatest sounds I've ever heard. But you're talking like 200 grand maybe to put this room together with the speakers and all the electronics. And then here we are talking about headphones that cost three that could potentially, from what you guys are saying, do the same kind of thing or have the same level of um, reliability. You could trust them as much, right? Uh, Alessandra, do you think more and more, no, not even electronic music, not even that, just music producers or mastering engineers or, you know, people working in making music are going to be moving increasingly more to, not just rads, but just to headphones in general because of the expense of putting it together of, a great sounding room? I think most of them are already. Yeah. I mean, but also if I personally consume most of the music on headphones, so it makes sense that I also make it on headphones mm. because the medium is, that's the medium that I designed them for. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Or that, that, I think it makes it sound like there's too much, you know, consciousness behind the process there isn't but what i'm saying is i list i consume a lot of music on headphones so for me to be making it and mixing it on headphones makes total sense um but going back to what you just said i agree i think that the fact that for three i don't know how you know 
$3,000, you can get a pair of headphones that are comfortable, that allow you to work in a precise and productive way and not have to think about an environment based on mixing on speakers, aside from maybe double checking out of, you know, confidence, mm. need of confidence. I think it's a no brainer. You know what I mean? It's just, uh, I mean, I, I, there's a certain amount of, uh, of factors that come from, you know, there are only to a certain extent achievable by mixing on speakers for sure. I think the speaker, I mean, I wish I could AB just because there are certain things that, that I can only hear if I hear them through speakers, you know, mm. um, whether the speaker, and I'm not talking about frequencies, but most, mostly about how the, how the track feels. I still, I still want to hear it through speakers. So I would go in the living room right now, which is definitely not a treated environment where I'm a clipsh and the, you know, the, the, the name unity uh, atom. The, the name unity yeah. atom. And I just, you know, I just stream them through that, you know, and I, I play it there and I go listen. It's not obviously the, the room is boomy and there's reverb because there's no art anywhere and there's only a couch, you know, it's a new new home mm. for us. Um but you still feel the track in an environment, you know, and I think that that will never be able to be emulated on headphones. But that's just a small fraction of the of the work process. Mm. I think that the nine, the ninety ninety five percent of it uh, can be achieved on a pair of headphones nowadays, and I, I think something like this couldn't have been achieved ten or fifteen years ago on a pair of headphones. That's for sure. Mm. John, you, you mentioned before that the way you made the Year of the Living Dead um, was sort of the the sound of the record was influenced by your using these headphones. So can we sort of? intuit from that then the hardware that musicians use to kind of record or to monitor their mixes can influence the sound of the record or the or the, or the decisions you make in you know in, in building the, the sound structures inside the record yeah i think it's just kind of what i was describing with the image and the sound stage those kind of details i never heard before mm. being able to one huge thing another thing that i'm pretty adamant about before adding all the fancy studio processes that we use is just the levels. If the levels are in the right place, it's such key uh, to describe that to non-producers. Is just uh, it seems really, really basic, and it seems like you wouldn't even have to think about it of where to place the kick and the snare and the guitar and whatever. But those decisions, if they're off even by a dB or two, those really affect the sort of juggling act that comes after. And if if by starting just having the levels in the right place, there's so much less to do. There's so much less to do in mastering. Um, that's a whole nother show, but maybe that describes it an intro of, of that idea a little bit. And being able to just, again, mm. trust trust where that's at. And I've got a VU meter to help me just to confirm those decisions. But that has, that has made Stefan's job a hell of a lot easier, I think. And he's kind of confirmed it, you know, um, because usually I've got... And again, it's just like listening to monitoring that's not doing the correct job for me where I'm going by what I'm hearing with my ear, but I'm I'm not getting an a accurate representation. It's sort of like, you know, a TV with the tint completely off and you're, or say your computer monitor and you're color grading your video to what you're seeing, but it's all fucked up. And then you publish it and people are like, wow, that looks like shit. You know, and you're like, that looks great to me. And then you realize <laughs> like, oh, my monitor was broken. Yeah. Oh my God. You know, I, I think that would be the perfect yeah. example. So, um, so yeah, it's just, uh, I mean, 
yeah, this is so individual, right? But I think just speaking for me and Alessandro, like we're both having the same experience uh, and we didn't even really talk about that. We just kind of chat about other bullshit here and there, but we're both. No, and no. the interesting thing though, as well as if people do have rads and they choose to listen to Year of the Living Dead, available soon on Compact Records. Um, they can put on the rads and they can um, they can hear it exactly as I hear it, you know. And that's kind of a fun thing, even with speakers. You know, you're you're sort of uh, you have to, the room to take into consideration. But yeah, if you yeah, maybe I can get Alex to make Year of the Living Dead uh, edition. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think that's but, a great. Uh, idea. Yeah, so that's that's a fun thing. Like when I send the album to Alessandro or to you, you know, you pop on the rads and you hear exactly what I hear, and I think that's really cool. That is really cool, but that's also one of the kind of the little bugbears of the language that surrounds the audiophile industry. And maybe you you hear it a lot as well, is when you hear a company say, like, hear the music as the artist intended or as they heard in the studio, right? Now, to do that, you have to have the same hardware that existed in the studio at the time of mixing or mastering or recording, right? If you want to hear... I don't know. I don't know what's that. Well, yes. No, I'm sorry, no, sorry, no go no, ahead. Go no, ahead. I, think, I, I don't think... I don't believe that. I mean, that's not true because, I mean, we spend so much money in mastering and stuff like that not to have... To have not for people to have the same gear that we have in order to listen to it. You know what I mean? No, but it's not to I have mean, the same gear to listen to it. But it's a, The it's whole a, process of mastering is to get rid of that. But it's So people can enjoy a record as close as possible to how you want it in their own MacBook Pro speakers. Or, or, you know what I mean? Like, yes, authorial intent, I agree with. But I'm talking about as it were, like the, the language of like, as it was heard in the studio. I'm like, well, you don't have the studio so you and you no, well then you'd have to emulate the space and be on the couch and the distance yeah. between the speakers yeah. and all that like you know the master for title like the, the masters and stuff like that i mean i am a big fan of you know high res so i, I won't deny mm. it but at the same time i think that's a gimmick a gimmick i'll buy into right no doubt <laughs> but you have to put value on music nowadays i mean if, if it means you know, telling yourself that a master, the master version sounds better than a, you know, than a normal 96. I mean, sure, let's, let's go for it. You know, if it means that people will pay more attention to music, but I think the whole thing of listening to the record, the way that the artist intended, I mean, the moment you hire a mastering engineer and you're happy with the master, you already have people listening to the version, the way that we want it mm. for it to be. I think, you know, I mean, I mean, granted, you could be playing through earbuds and it sounds different, but the, you could be playing a master title record through your, I, you know, iPod or whatever it is nowadays, earbuds. Yeah. And it still doesn't, you know, it's still, it's not exactly what the master version is supposed to sell. Right, because the hardware yeah. is, has a greater influence than the delivery formats, right? Yeah. I mean, I, th I think there's a certain amount of adaptation you can do, you know, mm. uh, in order for it to sound as close as possible. No doubt. Mm. But yeah, I agree with you in the sense that if it really had to sound exactly the same, then you'd have to be there. You'd have to be sitting there when you were listening to it. You know? Right. So, is you, I mean, Alessandro, I don't know whether you're, and maybe you can't even talk about it, I don't know, but like you're, let's just talk in the abstract, right? Your next record, whenever that might mm -hmm. come, are you are you going to make that on these headphones or what do you, do you, because... The next record is done, it's finished. Okay. It's, uh, but you know, a lot of the stuff that I've been releasing during this uh 2020 uh, no shows mm -hmm. year it's been you know the stuff that i've been releasing every month on bandcamp it's been uh, uh mixed uh, since i got my red zeros has been mixed and then mastered with them 
So, um, you know, it, it, they also allowed me to go back to a lot of the stuff that, that I released before I released it and listen to, to this material under a completely new light, mm. you know, because some of it was stuff that I hadn't listened since I made them. Like the first thing that I released on Bandcamp was, uh, the first modular synthesizer recordings I've ever done, which were done on an analog systems, um, modular that I got from Roger back in the day, you know, like from big city music in LA. Uh, so we're talking 2000, uh, 2001, 2002. And, uh, so I, I kind of knew how they sounded, but then listening to them on red zeros, listening to those files on red zeros made it much more interesting to work on them. You know, it was, uh, um, so it was a typical new piece of gear that really got me excited about things that I already was working on and kind of made me, you know, strive to to make everything sound a little better. And uh, the stuff that I'm working on now, um, the new stuff, mm. um, is obviously through through the Rad Zeros because that's all I've been using. You know? right. Not out of uh, lack of options. I could use other headphones or I could plug in my speakers, but I really don't have a need for it. I just feel like uh, they feel good. They, they sound great. And when I take them off, I really like the way they look as well. <laughs> it's not to be underestimated, the, the way, the way no, they look. I, well, it's really that's not. what got me into them to begin me with. Me too. You know? I mean, yeah. I'm a sucker for a balanced product that yes. looks good. It feels good too. Like, I don't want to feel like, you know, like the, the stuff is flimsy or that, you know what I mean? That, uh, that have to be delicate. Not that I have to mistreat stuff by all means, but a lot of the times, like, you, you purchase something because you've seen photos online and you get it and you go, well, I thought it'd be built better. You right. know what I mean? These are like, they're built like, you know, there's no way. I'm, I mean, I probably can destroy them if I wanted to, but there's no way you can do anything to them. They're just very solid. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I think John did something to his. I don't know whether we can talk about this, John, because you, you tweaked yours, didn't you? With um, And we must, I guess yeah. we must preface this by like, don't try this at home, but right. <laughs> you did something. What'd you do? What'd you do? Uh, okay. Um, yeah, you can. Um, you, I can talk about this because uh, it's obvious if you look at them. Um, there's a there's a filter over the driver, and that's become the standard tuning. Um, you can make little perforations in the filter or remove it completely. But it, the, here's the big: do not try this at home. The magnets are so powerful that if you want to take off the ear pad and have a have a play, and you should just contact Alex and Taylor about this because they'll tell you exactly how to do it. So don't go by my description here because i'm leaving out a lot of detail don't get anything metal near the driver because it'll suck it in and it'll puncture the driver like it is it is like a black hole don't get anything metal near that but there's um there's a lot of stuff you can do to um and again these little uh playing with the filter or removing it um the tuning still stays intact it's just certain things just get kind of elevated so when we shoot the measurements it doesn't all of a sudden become a totally problematic, wacky thing. And um, I believe that tuning was actually considered, and then it was considered like, okay, we're going to put this filter on, this is going to work for people. So now now if you were to get a pair, you can kind of, you can kind of mention what your preference is. And uh, they, there's a lot of things that can be done. But yeah, um, you want to you want to watch out for not ripping the ear pads because they're glued. Um, once you do remove any filter, so it's not something that you can uh, you can undo. Once you do it, you well, done. if if you're in LA, it's really re easy to redo because you just kind of go over there. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, that I think one option is to um, maybe to 
we've kind of discussed um, uh, including because there are two types of of filters that are placed over the driver that they've played with for different tunings for people. Um, so the idea is to do the thing where it just comes with pre-cut filters with nothing on the driver and you just kind of do your thing. But, it, it, you know, that's that's something I think he didn't want to get into. It's just like, no, here they are. These are the ones, you know. But um, if if you are into really having a play with what's possible, there is there is a lot of possibility there. There's, there's stuff to play with. Uh, there's other parts to play with i won't mention and then um again with the headband if it's if it's clampy there, there there's even an instructional there on how to do it um and then if you've got you know uh, rme and eq like there really isn't any reason to do any of this because you just save a different eq preset um but again most mm-hmm. importantly like right. the character the the tuning of them stays intact somehow it's the it's again it's like salt and pepper like you were saying but yeah be careful when you when you have an experiment especially if you don't live close by because you would have to ship them back to get fixed. That would be me. That would be me. <laughs> so. <laughs> no, plus I'm not really bored with them, you know? <laughs> like, I think I would probably, like, if I felt like, I mean, I guess I'd be curious just just because you mentioned that. <laughs> I mean, how can't you be curious? You know, we're, we live for these things. So, but um, I'm probably happy <laughs> the way they yeah, are. Yeah, and again, the, the those, those changes you can make with software EQ, it's it's really slight. It should be massive, but it's it's not, you know. But um, it's uh, I get tested every time I I go over there, and uh, so you, I mean, it, I'm hard pressed to hear differences. I have to swap back and forth for quite a while, and then you know, I, I generally kind of nail it. But it's it's always just kind of like, man, it's, nobody would care or hear it, you know. But uh. Yeah, I mean it's a thing. Yeah, if it's, if it's important, like you know, the 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 planar sort of quality of being a little warmer, um, if that's an issue, and you've just been blaring HD eight hundreds in your face for five years, then yeah, you can you can tune it a little bit. Uh, as you were saying way way earlier on, like, uh, and I said something like, yeah, they can be much brighter. So anyway, blah blah blah, but um, yeah, being being the uh, beta tester, I didn't know I was. That's kind of what we have a play with. But the thing is, I quite like the idea that this is like one company with one headphone with one voicing and like no options for you. Just like take it or leave it. I like sometimes not having choice is a good thing. Otherwise, you kind of drive yourself crazy by going, I could have this, I could have this option. I mean, I know I've talked to raved about the possibilities of the EQ on the RME, and I do like that. But I guess in, if I if I have the multiple options for the the headphone as well, then you've got many permutations, and I I think that's just too much for most reasonable human beings. I don't know, but yeah, I think that's why um, this other pair that we've talked about, I'm like always like uh, yeah, it's just too confusing. So I think that's why those decisions were made. Like this is the golden pair. That's where we're going with, and it seems to tick all the boxes. Um, yeah, the. Yeah, I, I'm totally with you on the option thing, and I. Yeah, it's just there's so much time has been put into how how this product works and sounds that um, there, yeah, there's no reason to mess with it, and yeah. So you're going to be selling your Genelec soon, then, John? <laughs> no, because I I can't even afford them, and uh, the I can't afford to get anything like that again. That they were, 
they were sort of handed gifted to me from Reggie, which was very sweet because, uh, you know, I'm doing all the production oh, for okay. uh, yeah, other yeah. projects as well. So I had some focals before that, which were, which were all right, but they always kind of bothered me. And it's probably just my room. They sound so different in different rooms that I've heard. Um, and these do the DSP thing, which I've actually switched off now because I think it's too weird, but, um, yeah, I don't know. They actually, to, I think worst case scenario, they may end up in the living room to be sort of like movie speakers, you know, because they would be fantastic for that. Hmm. Or just like, yeah, listening to to records. Um, I don't know. It's it's always those thoughts are always changing, but uh, yeah, somehow the the rats have stayed permanent. I mean, I've had so much time now to get sick of them. In fact, like, uh, but I keep I keep uh, discovering things I like about them as it goes on, and kind of appreciating them more and more. Like I was saying when I let's you know borrow or try something that seems really exciting that you know has kind of popped up in my youtube feed on like 20 different different people's videos that day and like you know you get excited you want to try the new toy and um you know it's exciting and then after a while just the sort of things i don't like come out and then it's again it's that moment of especially when i'm working on something that's kind of the key of of all of a sudden kind of feeling like i'm I'm not sure i can make a accurate decision there and then plugging the rads back in mm. and being like, oh, there it is. Yeah, I, I got this. Okay, you know, and kind of like uh, I wanted to say earlier when Alessandra was talking about calling up older sessions, that's always a scary moment. But it's this great thing with the, with the again, with the rads where, you know, maybe I have to get stems off something old or, or there's something I hadn't finished. And I pull up the session and it's just like, oh, boy, here we go. You know, but it's like instantly I know like and it'll be wild. Like, OK, that needs to go down 4 dB. That needs like, you know, that That's needs right. like yeah. all of that EQ just needs to go away. Um, everything's in the middle, all this frequency masking, it just makes it very obvious where the problems are. And it, it, it makes it really fun. Yeah. And really quickly, it's just like, pick, nope, nope, this goes here. Yep, 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 yep. And then like, the mix has been improved like uh, 10 times. And uh, Does that mean you're ever tempted to go back to say a record you made 15 years ago and then tidy it up and redo it? Like make, make oh, a 2020 no. version? Well, well no, because some people have different attitudes to this, right? Well, see, if they run out of ideas, sure. <laughs> we can go back and redo it. I, I think generally oh, God, most of the stuff I release sounds terrible. And I think the uh, the new record is as close as I've come to having what's in my brain and fingers sound close to what I wanted. I mean, I, I listened to like five compact albums ago and it's, ooh, it's, you know, but that's the quality of it. It's like... Uh, I always use this example of like, you know, uh, late 80s, early 90s dance classics, you know, like, or or punk rock, you know, like, what if Butch Vig engineered Black Flag, which, you know, I mean, he's a great engineer, don't get me wrong, but you know what I mean? There's a certain character and the flaws are important, the imperfections. So if... Completely. So I, yeah. I know it's it's difficult for me to hear some of that stuff um and and especially on the rads i I do want to open the session and just completely fix that and sometimes i do like maybe like getting stems for live stuff or whatever i can like re-engineer it and clean it up a bit but um i like alessandra's point on that whole thing so i'm going to stick to that more well to me it's like you know looking at if you had an old photo of you when you were i don't know 25 and you look back at how you were like do you want to go back and change i do 25 (laughs) years ago no (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I mean, 
mean, I'm not saying that I like everything that I've done, but I, you know, I, I, I don't necessarily actually know that I'll, gradually, I think certain aspects have gotten better and some others have gotten worse. But generally speaking, I've been able to detach myself to the point that I can appreciate them for what they are. And they all are stepping stones. You know, you just release them to authorize yourself to move on and to work on the next thing. I mean, that's the way that I see releasing music is just, you know, I realize that if I keep it on my drive and obsess over it to make it sound better, I'll never move on to the next step of writing new stuff or or working on something new, whatever that means. Mm. So to me, releasing it is a, almost a therapeutic process. You know, that doesn't mean that I don't pay attention to how it sounds. It just means that I do the best to make it sound the way that I feel resonates at the highest with me at that specific moment mm. and then move on to the next thing. There's a good chance that I'll go back to it and, and you know, 10 years or five years or a year after I release it. And I'm not happy where it's not where I'm at, but I'm not the same person that I was when I released it to begin with. So how could it be something I relate to, you know, unless you do like the ACDC sort of thing where, where there's nothing wrong with, where you just do the same record over and over and over again, because that's just who you are artistically, which is fine. But I don't think, I mean, I know John is not like that. And that, I mean, the proof is the fact that he's talking about his old catalog the way that he is. Sure. But you know. I think it's, I mean, it's interesting because you said that like the, um, the character of a record is it sounds and I agree with it. And I don't think you should go back and fuck with anything or remix anything. But every time that Tony Visconti announces a new David Bowie remix, because he's done Space Oddity, he's just done The Man Who Sold the World, like another remix of that. And I keep telling myself, I'm not going to buy these things. I'm not going to buy these things. And I always buy them because I just, I just want to hear like what could be done with a fresh, I guess a fresh coat of paint or like a, a tweak here and there. They're not like radical no, no, versions. I agree. But. I, I, I agree. I agree to a certain extent. There are certain records. I mean, I, maybe I don't think my records are worth that treatment. That's why I say no. But like, for example, for me, the White Album from the Beatles or everything that, you know, George Martin's son has remastered or remixed. Mm. It's incredible. And I'm, I'm very happy that it was, that was done. But, you know, we're also talking about records that are 50 years old. Yes, you yeah, know, for sure. Yeah. Done with a specific technology that is nowhere close to the level of, of precision and, and surgical approach that, you know, that gear allows you to apply nowadays. Mm. So David Bowie, same thing, you know, I mean, not only that gear was different, but probably the time allowed that they allowed themselves to mix it and to work on was much more limited than now, considering what David Bowie is for everyone as an entity. You know, he could take a year to make something. Tony Visconti could take a year mixing one track now sure. to make it sound really the way that he wants to. You know what I mean? I guess there's also a financial incentive with those kinds of releases as well, because they're so popular. But of course. But there's also things like, I mean, Carl Craig in the 90s put out an album called Land Cruising. And then I think I only discovered this recently. He re-recorded, well, re-recorded, remixed it, redid it in the mid two thousands. Now I, I still like the original more, but it was still interesting to hear. Well, it was just interesting to note that he'd redone it. He must have either really hated it, or I mean, John, have you heard this record? Do you, do you know about either of you heard? Yeah, this? of course. I, I I talked to him about that. I've, I've spent some time with him. Oh. Um, sometimes this stuff works. You know, I think sometimes. Uh, there can be a different interpretation of of something rather than just a redo. You know, I think I think that's what this was. It was mm. almost him kind of like remixing himself or updating. Like to your mm -hmm. point, it doesn't work 
Well, most times it doesn't, but sometimes you get somebody really creative that sort of re- reinterprets in a in a creative way, and then you kind of have both versions, and they're both good, you know. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't, I don't. I, I talked to him about it in the '90s, so I don't even remember. Um, but um, yeah, the the thing about the remasters as well, or or whatever, like. Sometimes they're interesting, but most of the time now they're just a lot more gain and they're kind of distorted and that's a shame, you know, like uh, there's some great YouTube videos out there of like you can have a a sort of intro to a song where a drummer is kind of like, you know, it's like say it just starts out with a snare and something like and then the song starts. Um, uh, You can hear all the articulation from from low volume to high and the original and and, you know, you have to turn your volume up a little bit. But um, on the new version, it'll just be like typing all caps, you know. And uh, I noticed that too, like if drummers, because uh, no, even though you don't think I'm a musician, John, I, I do play drums and guitar. But um, well, like one thing I notice is uh, when drummers, <laughs> when drummers are, uh, <laughs> when, when, don't be there. That's fine. I, I don't claim to be one. Uh, when drummers are like, say, playing ghost notes, that, that's one really delicate thing you can listen to um like uh bernard purdy and stuff like that like remasters of that type of playing like when ghost notes are just as loud as like the accented snares that's that's the kind of telltale of re you know quote unquote remastering um so yeah i mean remasters that don't push the gain are interesting to me remasters that are now reaching modern gain levels are garbage um and uh, I think a lot of that well, I would say is the... it's attributed to a lot of this stuff getting so, all the amps getting so cheap and needing these crazy loud files. You know, if you have a hi-fi system and you, you have a lot of power to spare and you turn that up and you have a really dynamic, again, dynamic, a word misconstrued many times, but basically you have a whole range from very quiet to very loud and you can turn that up. Mm-hmm. You're getting a really nice experience. Um, getting way off track here, but... <laughs> No, but it is an interesting point because I would agree with you that most remasters that are done now, I would say nine out of 10 are not as good as the original in terms of dynamic range. They may sound a bit fuller and they may have a bit more low end, like a bit more punch in the low end, maybe. I'm generalizing. But nine times out of 10, they're just too loud, they're too annoying and they're exhausting to listen to. And I'd sooner go back to the thinner sounding but more dynamic original. Again, a generalization, but I don't know. Alessandro, what do you but think? Also, well, I think I agree with you, but I think it's also because we grew up with the old version of the record. Mm-hmm. In other words, I think I think they're remastered for t- today. You know, when, when something gets remastered, I think, first of all, most likely it's an engineer of our generation. You know, like a, a younger, well, I don't even know if I can consider myself younger. But, you know, what I mean is... Um, it's someone that probably wasn't there when the record was released. A lot of the times when there's a remaster, we're talking about 30-year-old record at least, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so the years are obviously going to be from an engineer that comes from a completely different background, complete, completely different school than the engineer that mastered that record originally. So there's going to be already a, a different, you know, a, a, a different set of rules in his head. Mm-hmm. And then he's mastering for 2020. And you want it to sound appropriate when it comes up after something else on Spotify or whatnot, you know. So it's all stuff that you have to keep in mind. And and, and uh, is it my favorite version? No, obviously, generally speaking, I agree with you. Nine out of ten, 
I tend to revert to the original. And um, unless, you know, it's a different mix. Sometimes I'm more interested when they they go as far as remixing the record. And I'm not talking about a remix as in, you know, like a, a proper revisiting or uh, sorry. Uh, um, Re-engineer. Reinterpretation of a work. You know, re- you know, yeah, exactly. Like the proper, the, the process of mixing the song again. Mm. I'm more interested in that because uh, when you really get down to to multi-tracks, sorry, <coughs> and are able to really listen to single tracks and see what's going on, a mixing engineer might embellish certain aspects of a track that maybe weren't embellished before. And I think that's more interesting than just applying the technique on the whole master. Yeah, I think that's a that's an interesting thing. I have a friend, I, I can't say who who has these, but you know, these multi-tracks are going around with all these studios digitally archiving these sessions and there's like, you know, any classic song, Stevie Wonder, whatever you can think mm-hmm. of, there's all these multi-tracks and these guys are doing their own mixes of being able, you know, played in the sets and and the way music was mixed the bass was generally done away with so it is nice to like bring those drums to the forefront and it's just it's really impressive and there's a few DJs playing that stuff but um anyway so yeah to, to Alessandra's point that is really interesting and there's See, like, not that a lot of that like for example Tony Visconti mis- mis- mixing a record by you know I don't know Metallica whatever, I'm just random but that would be something much more interesting to me to have a specific mixing engineer that is famous for mixing specific genre approaching another genre and mixing you know, that would give um, the record a new, a new life mm. in a way. You know, I, I would be more interesting in the, interested in that than a remaster. In general, you know, I think the remaster is more of a way to make, you know, make money essentially. You know, and uh, again, anything that makes money to the artist, I'll take it. So it's fine. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I think when it comes to I see it more as buying a Blu-ray version of, of something you had on DVD already. You know, like it's a, it's a higher quality maybe because now it gets released on high-res files. Well, before it was a CD version. But, you know, there's plenty of, you know, CD versions that I have that, in my opinion, sound better than a high-res version as well. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because the remastered high-res is just a different master. You know what I mean? I think there's one artist we possibly might all agree, maybe, who has constantly sort of re, I guess, reprogrammed their work to make it sound more modern. And that's Kraftwerk. Because I prefer the modern Kraftwerk sound way, you know, huge. I think it's much better than the original records. Now, I know that's a controversial opinion for people who grew up with those records, right? But that, that new, that live box set, the one, two, three, not the one that John and I were talking about a while back, the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, but the live one, the you and I, and that's yeah, the 3D about, thing. Right? And I'm sure you've got this at yeah, the three. I just think that thing is just monstrous. I think it's the, the yeah, that is, that's to me the def- definitive. I agree. Craft work. But again, it's these kind of memories you, know, you might have of, uh, you know, sitting in your room and just staring yeah, at the cover forever. It, it doesn't work, so, convey you know, that same emotion but they're both good in that case no. they're both po- possibly equally good people can fight about it but you know they're both equally enjoyable no but i agree i agree with you 100 percent because i don't have an attachment to the you know like i don't, didn't grow up listening to Kraftwerk, but for example the white album by the beatles is a record that i grew up with because my mom was listening to it a lot so emotionally i'm definitely more attached mm-hmm. to the old version to my mom's record when i look at it you know and things like that but i can appreciate what is, was done with the new one and i i love it for different reasons you know what i mean 
Absolutely, yeah. I think you know when a record gets its hooks in you is is very dependent upon the the time. And I guess during your formative years, it can imprint upon you, and nothing is ever going to change that. So whatever comes afterwards is always going to. I don't want to say compete, but you're always going to compare if there is a new version to that original, and it will very rarely stand up if if the original is so deeply imprinted upon who you are. You know, like your white album i know john what, do you, what albums did you listen to when you were growing up that are really kind of like just untouchable as far as you're concerned they're part of your your psyche if you like or the part of your personality um well that's, that's a question of like what are you listening to and then you kind of have to look at your phone well when i was when i was really young um you know well talking about well when, when i first came to the states around age eight uh I remember like Black Sabbath Paranoid and like Led Zeppelin Four, like being like, oh, what, what is that? You know, that was really interesting. That got me into playing mm. drums, but I soon kind of gravitated towards electronic stuff. So for me, it was like, um, you know, the early Afro Bimbada stuff, Computer World, Art of Noise, Who's Afraid of, um, just kind mm. of weird records that had sounds that, you know, back in about 84, 85, when I was like 10, 11 years old. Um, I already knew I liked that and in some ways that I dreamed to make sounds like that. So yeah, those are, um, those are those records that take me right back to that moment, you know, when I, when I listen to them and I still listen to them all the time. Um, uh, then a little bit later, you know, there was stuff more like, uh, Public Enemy Takes a Nation Millions, um, those kind of, a lot of, a lot of hip hop and that kind of early golden age there and then early late 80s early 90s yeah it's kind of like the same instruments that people are using to make that stuff here comes you know acid house and chicago house detroit techno you the uk's pot of gumbo where they just threw everything in and made a bunch of new interesting stuff so those those were mm. things that really kind of defined me because they were taking things i've been listening to all my life and mixing them all up and that that really inspired me um and I think, yeah, those records we we talk about a lot, like UF Orb is a a really great one, and um, Orbital Brown album. Those are two that I can just put on any time, and I'm right back there to like sitting in my bedroom staring at the cover for an hour, you know. And uh, that's those are like my favorite <laughs> moments. Do you think it's easier? And I preface this just so obviously. Well, most of my listeners know that I'm a big fan of electronic music. Do you think it's easier to revisit and remix electronic music more so than say traditional sort of rock or indie music i guess it depends do you think it's, you... it's more forgiving maybe Ah, uh, well if you're talking about remixing if you're just pulling up mass uh if you're just pulling up two inch tapes or pro tool sessions then it's it's essentially the same thing you're mixing electronically digitized uh levels and it's rhythm melodies frequencies it's not so different um i guess i'm talking about people's you know fucking with people's emotional attachment to the original version so you know if for example if you got all the stems for uf orb and you remixed it how much would i kind of just go well this is great john but it's not like the original like or, oh absolutely it would be pointless <laughs> at that point it would be like yeah I where guess is the line of a yeah, the, even the word remix, right? It has a different history. It depends how old you are and what what remix means to you. 
Um, like originally, I mm. think remix was more like the extended mix, right? So you can get the one song yes. on the one mm-hmm. side and it can be louder and have more bass. Like I still get trapped into that version of a remix and now it's just, you know, reinterpretation, anything goes. Um, but yeah, there, there's so much that, that would, <laughs> now I'm not even sure what remix means either. Uh, yeah. To your, to your point, that would be pointless. It, there's there's no point to that. There's especially when you take the orb uh, as an example. The one of the main instruments was a mixing board. You know that's not really true for a lot of electronic music, but uh, thrash mm-hmm. on the mixing board that was that album. You know the the sounds could almost be interchanged in a way. So that that's an example of me doing my best on that would just be a massive fail. You know because I. I don't practice. I don't practice those skills, and it's the uh, I, another good friend, Ed from Plaid, always describes himself as a, a computer's assistant. <laughs> you know, so I think when you when you mentioned electronic music, uh, you know, versus musicians, there there is definitely some truth to that because it's, uh, when you're playing uh, or when I'm playing drums and guitars, or when I had my moments with that, I'm relying on muscle memory and training muscle memory, muscle memory, along with like learning scales or rudiments but when you're programming you're not really using your physical muscles apart from you know pushing a few buttons but now you're using a sort of more of a programming imaginative side of your brain so i think there's that distinction there Mm -hmm. but um yeah it's all it's all really interesting stuff um most reinterpretations are pretty poor aren't they (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Maybe land cruising was a, a great example of something, and there was also the uh, the thing we spoke about recently, the Scion, um, Pete and Renee doing yeah. the sort of—is it a mix? Is it a? It, I guess technically it is a mix, but the uh, remind me of the name of that album on Trezor, but it took all the basic channel stuff and and sort of re. Isn't it just called? Oh yeah, it's like Scion presents or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, but it's basically a bunch of basic channel stuff, sort of remixed and then mixed together as a that was my that was the very first basic channel I ever heard. Mm. So I didn't I was kind of like, what what even is this? I and it took me until like two years ago to realize who Cyan was, which is stupid really, but I guess I just never really kind of turned that page. You've just lost so much credit in my, in my <laughs> I know. I, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, that's a great thing. We all kind of school each other on things. There's so much to discover. It's just like I love that thing of one of you, one, one of you mentioning something to me, and I've never heard about it. And it's like, oh, this is awesome! I get to discover this all week long and go crazy, and then look up YouTube videos and just go bananas and and tell all my friends about it, and they go, yeah, we know, you know, <laughs> like, um, so that's that's the fun of it. It can happen, uh, Alessandro. Do you ever get asked to remix stuff, like, or? or- do, yeah. What's your take on that? I mean, do you do you enjoy doing it? Or I'm going to ask him you, right like, now. Actually, <laughs> it depends. It, it, it depends on the source material, really. Right. I mean, it's very hard to. It. I mean, I enjoy it, but it's never a remix. It's always a rework. Mm. Like I try to put myself in the in an environment where I'm actually like, what if, what it would have been what it would have been like if I actually wrote the track with the guy who asked, or the, the guy or the girl, the artist that asked me to remix this piece. Mm-hmm. So it's more like I, I put a certain comp- compositional aspect in it as well, as opposed to 
remixing. Sometimes I change the chord, the progression. Not always, mm. but you know, I tend to do that. So I, I've done I've done quite a few. I don't remember how many, but um, I find it fun for the most part. You know, it but it really depends. You know, but I'm I'm very picky. I, I don't think. I don't think I, I, I'd be good. I don't know. I don't think I'm good enough at it where I could just do remixes. You mm. know what I mean? Like, I, because then you can't afford to say, no, I don't want to do this. <laughs> it's, it's, it's easy to be good at it when you only do the things that you enjoy doing, <laughs> which is what I do. You know, like I, I have to have a connection with the, with the source material to begin with in order to feel creative. Right. Right. I see. I think maybe our work is done, gentlemen. That moment has arrived. Great. And the moment has arrived. Um, I'd like to extend my thanks to both of you for your time. Well, let it be known, because you guys can't see it, but I'm the only one wearing the red zeros <laughs> that everybody's talking well, I'm, about. I'm holding them. <laughs> well, do you know what? Uh, mine, mine are just here to my left, but I'm, you know, I'm a professional. I don't want the sound from my headphone leaking into my microphone. Ooh, and this is actually the first time I've used this microphone. So. <laughs> well, but I don't have a producer. Since you have a producer, I figured I could record it as shittily as possible, and then the producer's going to take Actually, care of it. Actually, I should give a shout-out to my producer, Nick McCorriston, who's in Canberra in Australia. Um, who t- well, Nick, have fun with this. <laughs> yeah, he does a great job. And if he can't fix it, Alessandro, I'll send it to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll remix it. How about that? <laughs> Thank you so much, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. It was a pleasure. Thank you. You have been listening to the Darko Audio Podcast with me, John Darko, Alessandro Cortini, and John Tejada. This episode was produced by Nick McCorriston, and music came from Ben Pitt.